Not a day goes by that we're not hearing about inflation in the headlines. And that's why we've got Mike Ashton, the inflation guy, back on with us. Mike, thanks for being on. Hey, it's always good to be back here. This is getting to be a regular thing, and I like it. That's exactly what I was going to say, is it's great to have you back on frequently. You and I start talking, and I think sometimes people lose sight of the commercial aspects of what you do. You're the managing partner or CEO of Enduring Investments. Can you talk a little bit about what Enduring Investments does? And for clarity, you and I don't have an economic relationship here. I love your views on inflation, and that's why you're on, but I, I just want people to know what you do. I appreciate that. I'm an inflation guy. And so Enduring Investments is, you know, it was originally conceived to be a, an investment management firm specializing in inflation. And that's a lot of what we do. But it's really a vehicle for deploying intellectual property around my expertise in inflation in lots of different ways. So everything from consulting, but we're now getting paid a little bit for content creation, which I never really thought was going to happen. We license investment strategies to other asset managers. We run some investment strategies for our own clients, both in sort of separate managed accounts and commingled accounts. So, you know, I, I like to describe us as being sort of the Memorial Sloan Kettering of inflation. You know, we, we spend time diagnosing inflation illnesses and problems and curing them. And, and we'd like to be thought of as sort of the preeminent place to go if you've, you know, if you're feeling a little under the weather and you think you might have an inflation disease. I like that analogy. You're also an expert witness, right? You've, you've served in that capacity <laughs> as well. Yeah, that's, that's sort of, again, not something that I necessarily sought out, but there isn't a whole lot of inflation-related litigation out there. Uh, but, but it is, you know, it's just, again, it's, it's another way to deploy, you know, sort of a rare expertise in inflation and inflation markets and inflation trading and inflation investing and, and, and so on. So everybody's talking about this, right? So inflation's up a record amount, followed up by another record amount. You and I trade emails once in a while. And, and my job on this deal is to have some, some crackpot theory and you and you just set, <laughs> kind of put some facts around it and say, well, you know. So here's my anecdotal thing. I've heard about a zillion people say of all walks of life, well, you know, things are so high right now, right? And I've got a diesel pickup. I paid five sixty-five for diesel. Mm. Three quarters of a tank was a uh, hundred quarter, which, you know, raised my eyebrows. Most I ever paid for a Philip vehicle. We all know fuel prices go up a lot faster than they come down. I know of four construction projects that are on hold because building materials are so high, and that smells like a recession. You've got people like CEO Goldman Sachs saying the recession risk is high. We've proven an old economic theory, right? Which is you add a bunch of stimulus and inflation flies out the other end. And this has been a pretty quick case study, right? What is going on? Can you separate truth from fiction and headlines from reality and what, what's really the case out there? Well, you know, what I like about you is, is we get these nice, you know, uh, focused questions. This should give a yes or no answer to. <laughs> somebody, somebody said to me, if, if, "Has anybody ever described you as laid back?" And I'm like, "Never, 
And, and what you get out of these questions is what is rolling, rattling around in my head. <laughs> ought to give you that really ought to scare you. I've released a video that, as you know, that that gives you some insight. So, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry in advance. No, that's okay. That's okay. Look, I mean, you know, we're we're all hearing the same questions. And the recession one is, you know, I, I think I've been, you know, pretty straightforward with my approach to to this question. I think there's there's almost no chance we don't get a recession. I think that, you know, if you, when you have gasoline prices, you know, doing what they're doing and you have the Federal Reserve uh, raising interest rates, that almost always, either one of them usually leads to an inflation, to a recession. You put them together and you're kind of guaranteed to get a recession. I'd be shocked if we don't get one. And I'm going to say by the year, by early 2023, because if you're in Congress and you've got an election coming up, there's a an enormous incentive here to start writing big checks again, which would prevent you from recording a recession, at least until later this year, early next year. So I, I kind of think that even though I think we're sort of ripe for it, I think they'll manage to push it off until after the election, but I, I can't imagine we're not going to have a recession. Now, the next question that people tend to ask me if I, when I say there's going to be a recession is they say something like, whew, that's great. You know, inflation will go down. And, and sadly, that's not the way, that's not the way things work. And so inflation is going to, and we are past sort of the peak inflation rate, but we're not going to see falling prices and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to see inflation go back to one or 2% just because we have a recession, unfortunately. And there's been a there's been a bit of a reset, right? One of the things that COVID changed is it allowed it allowed a lot of people to go buy a house and move where they wanted to in retirement, but keep working, right? I mean, you know, houses have just been at least in our area. We're out, you know, out in the hinterlands of Chicagoland. You know, a lot of a lot of house purchases. With regard to fuel prices, though. While there's a lot of headlines and it makes good TV, we're all, a lot of us are buying less fuel and driving less than we had to. Is that a mitigating factor? Well, that's See, just that's not that said. crazy of a question. That's, a, no, that's, good. that's somewhat that's a, narrow. <laughs> much more focused. And it's true that at least in personal consumption sense, we're, we're probably consuming less gasoline than we used to. And, and certainly when you get high prices, you tend to consume less. You know, there is a price response, although it turns out that gasoline demand is fairly inelastic in the short run. And it's very elastic in the long run. So you know, over the next couple of years, you'll see people move from the SUVs to smaller cars. And you know, so eventually you'll get some price response to it. You're right. Probably there's a, the bigger effect is the, the fact that people are working closer to home than they used to. But whether it's supply or demand, I think a lot of it obviously is, is the supply side. You, know, you do have high prices. And um, I guess the other sort of thing to keep in mind is that we don't tend to think about this in terms of when we, when we think about commodities, but, but we've, we've raised the overall price level. And so, so even if you have prices go back down relative to you know, yesterday's price, they're still going to end up being higher than they were the two year ago price. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. I mean, and to be, you know, the CPI geek for a second, 
I mean, what you are measuring is changes in prices right. of a set basket of goods, right? Yes. And that's what gets published. Well, and I think that, by the way, there's been a lot of talk about peak CPI. I think this is a horrible mistake of communication from the top, but a lot of people talking about peak inflation. And the administration is talking about this all the time, and, and economists are talking about it all the time. The problem is that peak inflation, peak CPI to a, uh, an economist means the rate of change is going to go down. But if you say peak inflation to the average person on the street, they think you mean prices are going to go back down to where they were. And that's not going to happen. The price level has changed. We have gone up. And if we have, if we have peak inflation, then that just means the rate of change is going to slow. It doesn't mean prices are going to go down. So I think that's where we are. Even if inflation decelerates from here, there are going to be a lot of people who are expecting prices to go back down and they're not actually going to get it. I think from a risk to the economy perspective, that would be deflation, right. which we've never seen it, but it's a death spiral, right? It's as far away as it has been in a long time. We're not going to get deflation, but you're right. But that's that's the way people though think about when you see right. peak inflation. You know, somebody said to me the other day, they said, "Oh, you know, I'm glad we're we're past peak inflation. I've been waiting to buy a used car until prices go back down." And I'm like, "Got news for you." Yeah, you're going <laughs> to be waiting a while. Little, yeah, but it's it's waves versus tide, right? So you know the tide is coming in. The tide is rising prices, and so you're you know prices are gradually rising. Every wave is going to a higher level, price wise, uh, and so even if you have a wave that pushes price a relative price back a little bit, it doesn't go back to the old level, and that's that's what that's what the rising price level means. And we've got you know, 40% more money in the system than we did prior to COVID, that tells you that the price level is going to be 30, 40% higher at the end of all this. And we're not, we're not there yet. And someone said this to me that COVID, while a health disaster and a health pandemic economically had less of an impact than was originally thought and that in retrospect maybe there was excessive stimulus is that how you see it i don't want to put words in your mouth here i'm just trying to figure out oh. you know is that is that a fair way to look at it oh no doubt no doubt if you look at you compare you know national income to gdp you know we are we are production wise gdp wise you know we're kind of back on the trend where we were pre-COVID. But income-wise, we're way, 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 way above that. And that's because you know we created money and dropped it into people's accounts. And that's where all the inflation comes from. So no doubt the, the government, you know, if they're going to force us to shut down, they needed to do something to make sure people don't starve. But they way, way, way overdid it. And I think we, you know, we knew at the time they were way, way, way overdoing it. <laughs> but like a lot of things, right, in the immediacy of we have to do something and we have to do something significant hmm. in order to stem the fears of I'm going to starve to death. Right. And it ended up being too much. But you go, OK, well, what's the other side of that? And the other side of it is ugly. Right. It's, yeah. it's really ugly. Well, you know, I think that you can make a good argument for 
you know, trying to, here's the way I sort of look at it. You know, if you look back at, at the global financial crisis, you know, the, the banking bill was 800 billion or something. And, and so you go into COVID and you're like, well, this is much bigger <laughs> than, you know, this is a global pandemic. So it needs to be bigger than 800 billion. And the 800 billion didn't have any inflation effects. So, you know, it didn't because it was a banking crisis, not a sort of different, different type of crisis. But, you know, so we can afford to add more. And so I think that was the initial, the initial thought. The real mistake, and then by the way, we're talking orders of magnitude. We're not trying to fine tune this to get the right number of, you know, millions. We're trying to just get, oh, how many trillions? But as soon as you knew that you'd done too much, then it was incumbent on the incumbents <laughs> to, to start pulling it back and to shrink the Fed's balance sheet and stop buying all the bonds and let interest rates go up if that's what was going to happen and, and stop spending money like it's going out of style. And that didn't happen. We just kept on going. And, and that's, that's where the real mistake made. It's very hard to blame people, blame the government for doing too much you know, in April, 2020, you know, but by September, 2020, we knew it was too much. So it's kind of from that point on that things got really bad and, and we're going to be paying the price for it for some time now. What about the labor market? You know, people have said, I'll oh, call it the great resignation. Other people have called it the great upgrade. You know, the fact is that I see a ton, a ton, a ton of help wanted signs every which way we're hiring factories, restaurants, you name it. Where did the labor force go? Like <laughs> what, what happened? Right. Cause everybody, I mean, I looked at, I, you know, these stimulus checks weren't, you know, a zillion dollars. I mean, it's, it helps, but yeah. come on. Uh, what happened? Well, so let's go back to the income versus GDP. So we're, we're back on the old trend of GDP. And that's, that's kind of limited by how much we can actually produce. And one of the things which limits how much you can produce is how many people you can hire. But the income, you know, the amount of personal income is still way, way above that, which means that each individual business says, you know, if I had more people here, I could produce more and sell more. And so every single business says that. And so you have what looks like, well, what is a real shortage of, of labor. We had the same shortage of labor before if we had had the same level of demand, but we've created this, this supply constraint, right? So everyone talks about this being a you know, supply disruptions and supply constraints. They're really not. It's really a demand constraint. We created way too much demand. And that's, how, that's when you find out you know, what you could be doing if you had enough supply. That's why stuff piles up at the ports is suddenly everybody needs lots and lots of goods from overseas. It's why you see all the help wanted posters is because everyone is walking around with a stimmy check or an extra large bank balance because they got a stimmy check. And, and so they want to go out to eat. And so, you know, there's a shortage of, of labor in that, in that uh, respect. But again, you know, if we didn't have that big stimulus, then right now we'd be producing and consuming at about, even levels and you wouldn't see this, this the big imbalances we're seeing. So it's it's all it, you know it's all you know self-induced. But by the way, that's part of what the recession will end up doing is taking away that extra income and bringing it back into into alignment, you know, unless the Fed keeps printing to try to stop the recession, which we'll see. 
would not surprise me at all to see further stimulus once we start to see, you know, growth weakening. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, there's an old joke that goes, you know, what what does every first term politician want is a second term, right? They don't care. Sure. They don't care after the election what happens. It's like, I, I need to get my seat. Oh. So housing. I would love to tell you that I'm some sort of a, of a financial forecasting genius, but clearly this was dumb luck. We locked in like a 275 30 year fixed mortgage. That rate <laughs> is substantially higher today. Housing prices seem to be strong. Not a lot of supply. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the housing market? Is it overextended? Is it just a reset of the price level? You know, people are moving to where they want to go live. I mean, what do you see there? Do you see another housing crisis? Seems like it's easy to get a mortgage. I see people advertising 5% down and the kind of stuff that you saw, you know, before the GFC. Well, and yet you have people talking about how, you know, traffic is slowing in you know, the realtor markets, you know, the outlook for existing homes, you know, existing home sales, uh, was very weak last week. It was weaker than expected, and it's kind of back to the levels prior to COVID. But prices are continuing to rise, and so we have to separate these things. And and you know, so for twenty five years, you know, we've connected quantity and price, and and those are those are not guaranteed to go together. That's why you can have a recession and you can still have inflation. Those are not necessarily related, and that's what you're seeing in the housing market. You're seeing less turnover, less foot traffic. But guess what? First of all, as you get these higher prices, so what I'm, I keep hearing is, oh, people are being priced out of the housing market. And so housing prices can't keep going up. Well, first of all, the first people who are priced out of the housing market are the new home buyers who have elastic demand. If you have an existing home that you're going to sell and moving to another existing home, you're not very price sensitive because you're doing a spread. You're, he you're hedged. Yeah. Right. And so the fact that there's less foot traffic does not really, it will affect the number of sales, but it doesn't necessarily affect the, the price. But the other thing is, you know, it's a real asset. And so again, you know, if we've got 40% more money. So since I was doing this the other day, since 2010, M2 is up 148%. So the total amount of money out there is, is up 148%, which tells you have the value of your individual dollar is you know, down commensurately. And home prices are only up 122%. So that to me, even though it sort of accelerates, and actually, if you look at the chart, you look at the chart of money growth versus the chart of home prices, they kind of are parallel. And when we got this inflection over COVID and the Fed started printing money like crazy, that's when home prices accelerated. So you sort of see this chart and you get this nice inflection at the same point. But if you sort of look at home prices as a multiple of incomes and sort of all the traditional ways that we tend to look at at housing to see if there's a bubble, you'd start to get a little concerned. You know, part of that is that incomes lag. So I, I don't really see any real problem there yet. I mean, at some point, obviously, there probably will be. And if the industrial purchasers of housing 
all of the institutional purchasers of housing, all the pension funds that have been buying up houses as a, as a real asset. You know, if they ever decide to put all that inventory back on the market, then, you know, you're going to have a problem. But at least so far, I don't really see that there's a, a major problem in housing. I can see that the home sales will decline, but prices are going to keep going up. That's interesting. We had a... Hey, that, by the way, they're not going to go up at 25% a year like they've been going up. Right, yeah. 15% over the last year, the last 12 months, about 14 or 15%. They're not going to keep going up that fast. But 14 or 15%, when you have inflation at 8% is the same as an 8% increase when you had inflation at two. And the problem is we're looking at all these things with 2% inflation glasses. And you see 14% and you're like, wow, that's really high. Well, wait, that's really high if inflation was at two, but because inflation is at eight, a 14% increase is not as much as it looks like. You know, while we're on things that are impossible to forecast, <laughs> we might as well add interest rates. Big, big, big backup in rates. I had a prof at the University of Chicago who is at the Cleveland Fed. I'm sure he's retired by now. But he talked about the fact that, you know, people, the average person, right? Not an economist, not a financial services person, not a finance geek, whatever, thinks the Fed sets interest rates. Like they set them like, you know, like it's going to be this. And as we all know, the Fed sets the overnight lending rate and the market sets the back end of the yield curve-ish. Mm -hmm. And the Fed <laughs> is, my analogy is a tree branch, right? The Fed right. is pulling down on the tree branch and it's lower. It was pulling down hard and you know now it's up a little bit. How much do you think, or to what extent do you think the level of the 10-year note is reflective of what it would be if the Fed let go of the tree branch. You know, when I first got into fixed income markets, our rule of thumb was, and it, it makes very good sense, but the rule of thumb was that nominal interest rates at equilibrium are should be roughly where nominal GDP growth is at equilibrium. So if if you're expecting, you know, 2% real growth and 3% inflation or vice versa, then you'd expect, you know, 10-year, 30-year rates to be around, around 5%. And, and there's, there's kind of some good arguments from equilibrium of why that kind of needs to be the case, something like that. We're clearly way below that. We have zero real interest rates, something like that. And, you know, two and a half, three percent expected inflation. That doesn't seem to make any sense to me either now or in equilibrium. I would think that if you get back to equilibrium, you've got to have real rates that are reflecting real growth in the economy. That's got to be one and a half, two, two and a half percent. And expected inflation, that's something like expected inflation. And, and maybe right now that's at three percent, but you can argue for more than that. But I think that until you get nominal 10-year longer rates, you know, up near four or five, I, I don't know how you can even argue it's equilibrium. But the funny part is, of course, the Fed does argue that's equilibrium, does think that, you know, two and three quarters or so is about, is, you know, the equilibrium real short-term rate. And that's just, it's just kind of crazy. When you just, this is just, I don't know, this is the professor in me. Can you talk a little bit about 
when you say nominal and real, mm. just for folks who aren't economists or whatever, can you make differentiate when you, you had used the term nominal yield and real yep. and so forth? Can you just kind of unpack that a little bit? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so the real interest rate is if you got paid back in good. So if I bought uh, a bond that paid in pastry and, and I paid one cake today, and it was a three-year bond so that in three years, I get a cake back. So it's a real bond, okay? The question is, how big are the cupcakes? The cupcakes are the interest rate. Now, if Do you we know where, into, is, there a, is there a broker dealer that sells these? Because this, uh, like, this sounds like a good this sounds like It a sounds good like a business, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I always go, you know, you think about what kind of real bond, and I always go to pastry because that's what I would buy. Absolutely. Uh, but so then you put that in a nominal space, and you can do the same thing. You just index it to pastry prices. And so your bond, you know, the, that initial cake costs $100 today, but, you know, you're going to have to pay off 123 years from now because the cake's worth more. And the cupcakes would gradually increase in size. So the price of those cupcakes is, is your nominal rate. So if you look at a regular 10-year treasury that pays you a coupon, that's a, a nominal bond. And, and what the interest rate is, is it consists of the cupcake, the real part, and the price adjustment that, because that cupcake's going up in value. And so that expected inflation is part of that interest rate. And so when you take real and add expected inflation, you get a nominal interest rate. So nominal is the world we live in. All the prices we see are, are nominal prices. But if we want to compare things over time, we have to compare them relative to the price level. And that's when you move into real space. And you say that, yes, the price of a computer today is the, the same as the price of a computer in 1982, you know, but the overall price level is much higher. So that it's actually much, much cheaper. So I really like that analogy. That's a, that's a, that's a good <laughs> one. So we're getting kind of to the end here. What do you think as an insurance investor looking out today, what is your biggest concern? Well, if interest rates are at three, and I think that the equilibrium is four or five, and by the way, what that also sort of means is if inflation is going at 5% and you can borrow at three, then you should borrow at three and, and invest in something which is you know, going up with the rate of inflation, right? So that says everybody should be borrowing at that rate, which is one of the reasons the rate should go up. But if that's if that's the case, if if we're going to see interest rates go up to four or five percent, and if inflation is going to keep going like I think it's going to go, that also works in sort of an additional drag, and we're going to have a recession, which is what I expect. Then, yeah, stocks are twenty percent off their highs, but uh, you know, at their highs they were. They were uh, riding a wave of liquidity and very, very optimistic about the long run. So now we're off 20%. I don't see, it seems to me that we could have a considerable amount further to go, not in a straight line, but we've got a fair amount further to go. Now, the good news is the overall price level is going up. So the, the real price of stocks is going down. So I guess that's good news, but, but stocks are not an inflation hedge. And if there's one thing I, I have to I work very hard to convey to institutional and individual investors. You know, lots of people are told and, and believe that 
the stock market is an inflation hedge because an individual business gets revenues and pays expenses that are, you know, related to inflation. And, and so people think about a business as being, and obviously some businesses are more inflation protected than others, but a, but a business is a real asset. And stocks are not because stocks also have a multiple attached to them and the multiple tends to go down when the discount rate goes up. So, you know, that's the, I would say that people who are, are have moved out of bonds because they're, you know, the yield is too low. They moved in equities because they think that's inflation protected. That's wrong. And they should be looking to diversify into more inflation related assets, which are more expensive now than they were two years ago. But still the the amount of they're much less risky as well at least in an inflationary environment so you know we talked about the idea that there was not additional stimulus it was blocked by uh by joe manchin and and we we never talk politics here this isn't a political statement at, at all mm-hmm. but the fact that there was not additional stimulus helps by keeping the price level down and we would have higher inflation, right? Than we would have. So you started talking about, I mean, if- The fallacy if, of composition. Right, the fallacy of composition, yeah. meaning if we all get a check, none of us get a check, right? I mean, yes. talk about how that inflation translates into balancing the budget, for example. Yeah, so uh, this is sort of interesting. It's not. Sort of. It's very interesting. So Friedman said a long time ago, he said, look, you know, the government, you know, can't really spend more than it takes in. It can take it in two ways. They can, can take it in, in taxes or it can take it in in implicit taxes by causing inflation. And, and that's not theoretical. I mean, it's really, you know, if you look at what's happened to the balance, to the budget balance since, you know, prices started surging higher, Revenues have gone up a lot because they've come in through sales taxes and property taxes and income taxes. And so you're paying more in taxes simply because the price level is higher. And and so, you know, this gets to the fallacy of composition. If any one of us gets a check, it's great. But if everybody gets a check, then the price level just sets higher and and you are no better off than you were. I think we all kind of, implicitly feel that like we all feel like we got this nice stimmy check and i think we all kind of feel a little bit like we're treading water and we're paying higher taxes and uh and that's that's really true that's exactly what's happened i love it listen man thanks for being on it's always great we always have a you know for full disclosure people don't know but we have no questions no prep no prep call no nothing we just get on the phone and i hit the record button and you and i just start talking and uh it's been great i Michael Ashton, CEO of Enduring Investments, otherwise known as The Inflation Guy. Mike, thanks for being on. Thanks a lot, Stuart. My name's Stuart Foley. I've been your host, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast. 